had a um, last week we had off for a uh, a non-snow snow day. My kids loved being out of school, uh, playing outside with no snow. There was, I guess there was snow in one, one out of three days. So, uh, again, my name is Brett Wynn. For those of you who do not know me, I'm a pastor here at Seconds. I'm a young adults pastor, but also uh, I'm a pastor of the North and West Parishes, and, uh, and I have a lot of fun doing it. And um, uh, someone was just asking me earlier, excited about this morning, or, you know, and I was, I said, well, I've been thinking about it this past week. Someone asked me, he's like, what? What's the thing that you like most about being a pastor and teaching on a, on a regular basis? And I thought about it for a little bit, and, you know, I was like, well, I think I like the role of it. You know, not up front, but the role is, as pastors, we get a passage like 1 Samuel. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel. We, we dive deep into God's Word. We, we consult the Hebrew scholars. We consult commentators like Ralph Davis and J.D. Greer, like I did, and we, we hear from God, what we believe God's saying through the scripture, and, and like I was this week, and just as we study and prepping and being blessed by it, and the role of a teacher and pastor is we just relay all that we have heard from God, all that we have learned, all that we stand in, stood on the shoulders of the, the experts that we got, and we just relay, so we kind of really get out of the way, and, and on this morning... Uh, I was blessed by Hannah's prayer. That's what we'll look at. And I'm excited just to relay what I believe that God is teaching us through his word. So uh, Hannah's prayer, the story of Hannah is really in 1 Samuel 1 through chapters 2, uh, 11. And you see multiple prayers there. But this spring in the Amen, what we're doing is we're looking at some of the great prayers in the Bible. And we're looking at... Uh, some of the Old Testament prayers, like we've done with Barton and Todd. And then we'll turn our attention to some of Jesus' prayer in, in the Gospels, learn from his prayers. And then we'll look at some of the prayers in the New Testament church. And we're turning our attention to study these prayers, one, to encourage our own prayer lives, uh, encourage our commitment to prayer. As usually that's the first thing that we uh, lose in our commitment. But also, and what it's done, already done for me, I usually sit over there, is to remind us to value in the importance of prayers. We want to stand on the shoulders uh, of our, our brothers and sisters who've gone before us. We want to be discipled by them as they have lived their life following God. As they cry out to the Lord, we can learn a lot from them. So there's, there's a lot we can learn. So this morning we're looking at a very popular prayer. Um, someone was just telling me their, their daughter just named their child Hannah, very very popular person in the Old Testament. And we're looking at Hannah's prayer in her distress in chapter 1. She's in a very difficult situation. We find her praying to the Lord. And in her praying to the Lord, we see how the Lord encourages her and renews her confidence and contentment in the Lord. And he answers her prayer. So let's go ahead and look at it and read the passage together. 1 Samuel 1, we'll read through chapters 2 Verses 11. There was a certain man of Ramathium, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, son of Elihi, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. Some, some names right there. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peniah. And Peniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year, 
his, from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli and Hophini and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give to him the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from, away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel will grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. They went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man, Elkanah, and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she was weaned. He was weaned. And when she had weaned him, she took up him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young, and they had slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And, the wor and he worshipped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed to the Lord and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble-minded are strength. Those who were full have hired themselves up for bread, 
but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren have, has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down the shield and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Akana went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. And this morning we ask that you would illuminate our minds to this text. Would you soften our heart to your spirit? May you meet us here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a great story. Let me give us a little context to the story as we're kind of reading along with it. Uh, chronologically, 1 Samuel is coming right off the book of Judges, so we can learn a lot about the condition of Israel during that time. Um, if you go back to Judges 21-25, you kind of see the condition of Israel. It says, in those days there was no king, so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So this kind of summarizes the condition of the nation of Israel during Samuel's birth and where we pick up this morning. Now, having entered into the promised land, uh, Israel was, came in in victory and strength. And the people of God had lost their way spiritually and, and politically and even and militarily. And Judges 2.10 explains why. It says, after Joshua and his generation, there arose another generation after him that did not know the Lord. So the, the nation of Israel had begun to, to worship and follow in pagan ways and worship an, you know, unholy idols. So these were some spiritually dark times for Israel. And in, in 1 Samuel, where we pick up, we're introduced to a man named Elkanah, who uh, in verse 3 we've seen um, even he had, uh, in dark, dark times when people are worshiping other idols, Elkanah is going weekly and yearly to worship the Lord. So he is a, a small light in a dark world, and this will come out into fruition later. However... We also learn in Elkanah in verses 1 through 2 that he had two wives, Hannah and Paniah. Just knowing this man had two wives, but he also says daughters, so he had multiple daughters, we know that there's some major dysfunction and drama in the house, right? I have, um, I have three kids, two daughters, and me and my wife, and so there's my son and I are outnumbered. We have three girls in our house, and there is, I grew up in an all-boy house, and there is so much more drama that happens in our house than I had when I grow up. I'm, I'm shocked by it all the time. But I can't even think about having multiple daughters and two wives. There would be so much drama. <laughs> Hannah, who we really love, cannot have children. And Paniah seems to have a lot of children. And there's some rivalry going on between them. So that we know there's a lot of drama and dysfunction. And because of this, because of this situation, Hannah is distressed. And in her distress, she calls out to the Lord and he answers her prayer. One of my favorite commentators said this about 1 Samuel. He says, Hannah serves as a, as a tutor. 
as a mentor for us as in, a personal, in our personal prayer lives. So what can we learn as, her, as our tutor and as our mentor? What can we learn from Hannah? Well, there's two prayers that Hannah prays. First one is praise. Hannah prays in her time of worry. We find that in verses 1 through 18 of chapter 1. But we also see Hannah prays in time of worship. We see that in 119 through 210. Let's look at both of them. First, let's look at Hannah's prayer in time of worry. What, what was wrong with her? Why was she worrying? Well, we just read Hannah was a woman who, to put it plainly, was um, in an awful situation, right? Hannah's issue was that she was incapable of having children. She was infertile. This is very difficult today. And I know a lot of us in here um, probably have dealt with this in the past or now are dealing with it. And it's extremely difficult. And we mourn and we pray with you. It's also extremely difficult during this time, but maybe for some different reasons. J.D. Greer helped unpack this. He said in the Jewish Talmud, a person without children was considered as good as dead. Uh, barrenness was even a legitimate grounds for divorce during this time. So that's why he even said that he loved her. Why was this so crucial that families would have a lot of children? Well, there's three reasons. Israel was an agrarian society, which meant the more sons a person had, the more potential laborers they were to work the land, right? The more laborers, that means the more crops, and the greater the crops, the greater the income. So the, the greater the income, the greater your status in society. So the more children you had guaranteed that a family would be financially stable and occupy a higher status. That's the first reason. second reason is in this time, they didn't have a 401k or social security. So children were the retirement plan for the ancient world. The more children a couple had, the more likely the couple was to be taken care of. Thirdly, uh, having children was necessary for the survival of the nation. The economy and the military were completely dependent on families having large amounts of children. So not only were families dependent on children, the nation was too. So therefore, women who bore a lot of children were treated with honor, and they were seen as heroes. And women who were unable to build children, they experienced large amounts of shame. So this is where Hannah is experiencing shame. She's, you can see that she's distressed. To make it even worse, Akana's other wife, Paniah, was having lots of children, boys and girls. It calls Paniah here her rival. It says in verse 6, her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her. In verse 7, it says that Paniah would provoke Hannah constantly. So this was not just happened one time, one incident, but it was happening year after year. Now, the word provoke here is very interesting. It's an abnormal word in the Hebrew. Uh, it means to thunder or roar like a storm. To thunder or roar like a storm. It's a type of word like when the disciples were caught out in the sea and they came into a storm. This is the word that would describe that storm. And it's very interesting that they use it here because Tim Keller says this is the only time in the entire Bible that the word is described anything other than a storm. So because of Hannah's barrenness and because of Paniah's provoking, Hannah's emotions were thundering and roaring like a hurricane. Verse 7 lets us know that her depression was so intense that she even refused to eat. To eat. This is some heavy stuff. Hannah was in the storm of her life. She was unsettled, sad, depressed, 
hopeless, down on her life, unable to eat. Her emotions were thundering, roaring like a storm. Now, I know, um, because I know some of you, and being a pastor for a number of years now, um, I know that a lot of us in this room have had our own storms. And when we hear the words describing Hannah, we completely get it, right? And maybe you're in a storm right now. Maybe it's been a loss of a job, loss of a loved one, wife, kid, or a close friend. Maybe it's the reality of unmet dreams or expectations. Or maybe it's the provoking from others of slander about you. Or even like Hannah, maybe it's infertility. We've all been there, right? And I know I've been there. I was just, as I was reading and preparing for this, uh, one situation kept on coming to my mind. Um, I got permission to share this. But when my son was one, two years old, we started to realize that he wasn't talking. And he probably wasn't going to talk anytime soon. And, and this being our first child, we were pretty nervous. Um, and, you know, the fears of maybe our son won't ever talk. Uh, not sure. And as a parent, you want to fix it, right? And you want to make it right. And by this point, you just, all you can do is read books and, and try to help and, you know, maybe call in some speech therapist. And I remember thinking, and in, in night after night, my wife and I would go to our room and pray and cry together and cry out to the Lord. We, we really did feel like we were in a storm. And one of our friends, a pastor friend, another family who had been kind of through the same thing, he was our mentor. He's like, you'll get through this. And him and his wife kind of walked with us through it. And this is what Hannah can do for us. What do we do in these times? Well, let's look at Hannah, how Hannah responded. In verse 9, we see a change. This is, this is really neat. Hannah rose, or some translations said, Hannah got up. This isn't some filler vocabulary to kind of transition us to the next thought. This is a turning point in the story. The Hebrew word for rose indicated decisive action. She, she made a decision of what was going to happen. She was down in the storm of her life, and then she said, I, I got to do something. I got to make a decision. Meaning Hannah stood up. She was convinced that she knew what she needed to do. What did she do? Well, she went to the Lord. She went into the temple and started praying. Is this a conviction of ours? I know um, when, whenever I get into a sticky moment or, you know, I need uh, advice or we're in a storm of a life. The first thing I want to do is, you know, call, call a friend or call my dad. Hey, dad, what do I need to do about this? Or, you know, call someone or consult something on the Internet. Get on Google real quick. Uh, that's what we want to do. She made a decision to go to the Lord in prayer. Is that our conviction? To, when we go through these hard times, that's the first thing we want to do is just go to the Lord. There are four things that we can learn about her prayer in the time of worry. First, notice her honesty and realness in her prayer. Her prayer isn't a very polished, clean, and artistic prayer, right? But it's honest, tearful, with lots of humility, lots of, lots of tears. She was pouring out her heart, it says. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept 
bitterly. We, when we come to the Lord, sometimes we feel like we need to have these nice, clean, beautiful, and holy prayers. We've, we feel like we have to kind of get ourselves together to go in God's presence, right? But this isn't the case. She came to the Lord honest, distressed, probably mad at God with all of her emotions laid out. She was crying to the Lord in front of a priest, probably really embarrassing. But this is what the Lord is asking us to be, come to him with real and honest. One of my friends, he's a pastor, and at one point he lost his job, and he didn't have a job for a little while. And he said, my prayer was this. He said, Lord, if this is how you treat your servant, no wonder you have so few. And I thought to myself, you're a pastor. <laughs> but that's, that's the real honesty that was going on in his heart. And the Lord welcomes it. Hannah knew that she had the freedom to go to the Lord to do that. Not only the freedom, but that the Lord desires that. Psalm 142, probably what she knew, the song, it says, I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. And Psalm 6, 8 says, the Lord hears the sounds of our weeping. She knew that she had the freedom to come to the Lord. In her bitterness of soul, in many tears, in sadness, she pours her heart out to the Lord, and he listens to her. And we see this throughout all the Psalms. David and others pouring their heart out to the Lord. The Psalms of lament, the Psalms of complaining, and they always end up in joy. This is the freedom we have in our prayer. The Lord desires for us to pour our hearts, whatever we're going through. It doesn't have to be these nice, clean, polished prayers, but we have the freedom to weep, to stumble over our words, maybe not even make sense. And the Holy Spirit will speak on our behalf before the Lord. He meets us right there like any good father. So he's real and honest, and she's real and honest in her prayer. But secondly, look at her words. She was calling on the character in the history of God through Scripture. Now, Barton and Todd have taught on this a couple of times, so we won't spend too much time here. But in verse 11, she says, she calls out and says, Lord of hosts. And so what this is, Lord of the commander of the heavenly armies. And this is used, this name is used 284 times in the Old Testament. So this is common language that describes the name, that describes who God is. And she knew it. So she's saying, Lord, the commander of the heavenly armies, please come help me. Come fight for me. I know that's who you are. She's calling out a God who's the cosmic ruler, sovereign over every power, who, who will fight for her. That's who she's calling on, the name of him. But also in verse 11, it says, If you look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servants. She is praying scripture here. This is, uh, she's quoting Exodus 3, 7. When the Lord assures Moses about the people of Israel in captivity, it says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have their and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters, their slave owners. I know their sufferings. She knows the stories of her ancestors. She remembers the character of God and how in distress and in slavery called out to the Lord. And he heard them and he saw them and he delivered them. So she knows that story and she's saying, Lord, I know this is in your character. 
I know this is in your ability. You did it with my ancestors. Now would you do this for me? It's a beautiful way to pray scripture. There's been other times in my life that we've been in storms, and I, I believe that one time in particular, the Lord gave me a passage. I didn't have enough capacity, emotional margin to, to go to Scripture. I, I believe the Lord gave me Scripture, and it's the Lord calming the storms. And I remember thinking through it as I was just trying to process all that was going on and thinking through how Jesus was asleep on the boat with the disciples, and the disciples were in a storm, and the, ra- and the seas were raging, the waves were raging, and they thought they were going to die. And they go down to Jesus and ask, what are you doing to sleep? Would you help us? And Jesus gets up and rebukes the winds and the waves and it calms, right? And I started thinking to myself, God, Lord, I know that you're on my boat. I know that you're with me. I know I'm also in a storm right now. There's waves raging all around in our life. But, Father, I know that you have the power. Now, would you please calm my storm? I was able, the Lord gave me this scripture, I was able to go to it and say, Lord, I know who you are, and I know what you're able to do, I know what you've done in the past. Now, would you do it in our life? That's what Hannah is doing. She is praying scripture and asking the Lord. But thirdly, we also see, notice her, she petitions the Lord. She asked the Lord what's on her heart. She asked for a son. In verses 27 and 28, Four times she uses a form of a Hebrew word, which means to ask. And now it's difficult for our English translations to pick up on this. Uh, and you probably only get that from reading Ralph Davis. Uh, but in verse 17, it also says, May the God of Israel give you the asking which you asked from him. And then she names him Samuel from Yahweh, saying, Meaning I have asked for him. So she asked for her son a lot. She's petitioning the Lord. Um, before I was a pastor, I was on staff with our college ministry, uh, Campus Outreach. And my first year on staff, uh, I was at a different campus from University of Memphis. And I was, uh, my supervisor was saying, well, you know, what do you want to see the Lord do on this campus? I was like, well, I want to see these, these fraternities. I want to see guys come to know the Lord in it. And I want to see, you know, these fraternities change instead of, all the stuff that goes on in fraternity houses, I want to see Bible studies and accountability groups and stuff. And he's like, that's a great vision. <laughs> he's like, have you, have you started to see? Have you seen any progress? I was like, actually, not really, not yet. And, and he's like, well, have you asked the Lord? And I became extremely convicted. I was like, oh, to be honest, I, I haven't asked the Lord for that. I just assumed that he would know that. And he's like, well, you might want to ask him. So every morning I would go to Panera. Some of you might think that's funny if you know me. I like Panera. I would go to Panera and I would get a journal and I would start writing names out. Would you save this guy, Sam? Would you save Chris? Would you give me relationships with this fraternity? Would you let me play basketball with this fraternity? And sooner or later I could see the Lord answering prayers. And I was petitioning from the Lord. We can Ask for specific requests from the Lord. Sometimes we forget that. Lastly, notice in her prayer, she surrendered to the Lord. She makes a vow to the Lord. Verse 11 says, she asked for a son, but she vows to give him back to the Lord. Now, she's making the Nazarite vow, 
that if the Lord gives her a son, that he will lead the family to serve in the temple of God. Now, I won't go on about this vow, but if you want to look at the details, uh, you can find that in number six, uh, passage number six. that gives you all the details and requirements of the vow. This is what she's referring to. But what's important for us to know is that Hannah is asking the Lord to give her a son, and she's consecrating her son his entire life to serve in the temple. Now, this isn't a bargain where if God, if you, um, if, would you do this? If you do this, I will quit doing this sin. Or God, I promise you I'll go to church every week and I'll tithe if you would just answer this prayer. That's, that's a bargaining prayer, right? This isn't a bargaining chip that she's doing. This is a complete surrender. She's surrendering herself to the Lord. When she's saying this, when she's vowing this, she's pretty much giving up all the claims to her son in order to let him live in the temple and to serve God. This vow essentially moved a person out of one's family. And all that was valuable in having a son, she was surrendering to the Lord. He would not grow up in her house under her parenting. She wouldn't teach him letters and animals. She wouldn't teach him how to ride his bike. There wouldn't be a Christmas with him, opening gifts. He wouldn't be an emotional support for her. There wouldn't be a 401k. He would have, actually have zero inheritance. There's no financial gain from this. What she wanted so bad was a child. And in this, it caused the storm of her life. And she's saying, Lord of hosts, you can have it. You can have the thought of having a child, but even if I do have a child, you can have my child. She is completely surrendered. Now, this is exactly what the Lord desires from us. He wants us to surrender our worries, our hardships, the idols that are on the throne of our hearts. He wants us to surrender them to him. So in time of worry, she comes to the Lord and says, no, you can have this. What's been destroying my life, I surrender to your sovereignty and even to the care of you. And if you do answer my prayer, you can have him too. So she comes with realness. She calls on the Lord and his character and history. She petitions the Lord and she surrenders. That's in the time of worry. Now let's transition to her prayer in times of worship. Well, very quickly, in verse 18, there's another change. After prayer and blessing from the priest, it says, Yet Hannah went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So something happened. She is interesting here. She went from sad to no longer sad. She went from not eating to eating. Her face had changed kind of in appearance. She just surrendered the tangible benefits of having a son in order to serve the Lord. And despite knowing if the Lord was going to answer her prayer, she was content. What happened? Well, Hannah's joy no longer was dependent on obtaining a son. Hannah's joy was now found in God, the God of her salvation. It says that in verse 2-1. She calls him the God of her salvation. This discovery anchors her soul to a rock that quiets the storms of her life. We see that in 2-2. And what I think I missed the first time I read this 
I thought it might go in this order. Hannah prays, Hannah gets pregnant, and then Hannah's joyful. And then the storms of her life calm. But actually, it's different. When I, I realized this, it's beautiful. Greer, J.D. Greer lays this out beautiful. Hannah's praise, and then Hannah's content, and then Hannah gets pregnant. This is fantastic. Hannah, in her distress, she went to the Lord. And there at the feet of the Lord, she had her deepest needs met. Not in having a child, but she found her needs met in God. She found a source of joy and security in life. She found contentment, a spring of living water that never runs empty, a vessel that isn't broken and it doesn't run dry. And it was greater than having her hope of having a child. She found her contentment and salvation in Yahweh. Look at her prayer in chapter 2. It's all of worship. She goes on to praise God for his unfathomable wisdom, his great strength, his, his perfect beauty, his compassion for small, broken, and sinful people. She's had a life change here. This is what repentance looks like. So what does this mean for us? Well, this is good news for us. We can find joy and peace even when our dreams are unmet, where circumstances aren't ideal, or life isn't good. We can find our ultimate treasure in him. She no longer looks to having children to provide her with value or worth, and she's found it in the Lord. This means even when our, our children aren't sport stars and, you know, Division I high athletes, that life is going to be okay. And that actually, that's a, that's a broken cistern that we're drinking from there. And that we can have a, a, a spring of living water that we can go to to actually find life. She found her life, her security, her identity and significance wrapped up in God. She was finally set free from her bondage to the idolatry of family. Even though family is good. I love having children. I pray other people have children. But sometimes family can even be an idol in our lives. This is what's offered to us, and this is what drove her to worship. The commentary says that her prayer probably now looked like this. God, I'm still asking you for a son, and I have a hundred times before, but all my life I've asked you for you to give me a son to make up for some deficiency in my life. It's always been for me. Now I'm asking for one for you. You are my sufficiency. You are my treasure. And if you give me a son, he'll belong solely to you. You see how this completely changes everything? The Lord met her heart and met the real needs of her heart. The Lord also did give her a son. And it's pretty awesome how Samuel is used to lead the kingdom of Israel out of the season of darkness. And he leads them to having kings, Saul and David and uh, Solomon, but I, I think it's pretty tempting to think if I use this formula that Hannah prayed, then the Lord will answer my prayer. And I'm sad to say that's not how it works. This is, this is not a formula. The Lord sometimes will answer your prayers, and sometimes he doesn't. I'm not sure how that works. But this is not what the passage is teaching. The passage is teaching us that 
how to approach the Lord. It's not teaching us a formula to get our prayers answered, but it's teaching us a prayer how to approach the Lord of hosts. It's teaching us that who the Lord is, the Lord of hosts, a good shepherd, the God of our salvation. And it also teaches us a model to worship him. Notice her prayer in verses 1 through 10. In verses 1 through 3, Hannah is elated over the Lord's salvation in her own life, how he, get, he saved her from distress. Notice the personal pronouns there. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. She is driven to worship by her own experience in the Lord. When we, when we come to worship, we can look at what the Lord's done in our own life and saved us from our sin. Now he's blessed us in a lot of different ways, and that should drive our worship. You know, in, in the mornings, uh, worship on Sunday morning, we ask you to quiet and prepare your hearts. And that's kind of the idea is to kind of quiet and think through how the Lord has saved you and how the Lord has blessed you, and that drives us to worship. That's her own personal experience in verses 1 through 3. But quickly also, in verses 4 through 8, Hannah moves from her own personal experience and then worships the Lord because her salvation is in the very character of who God is. Her focus shifts from her own story, her own experience, how God saved her, but then it focus turns to, oh my goodness, this is who God is, and it worships who he is. It says, the bowels of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren have borne seven, but the Lord who has many, but she who has many is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down the shield and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the, the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the Lord of the earth are the Lord's, and on him he has set the world. She goes from looking at her own experience and how the Lord has saved her, then realizes, oh, the God who did this, this is who he is. She becomes more amazed that, oh my gosh, this is the character of Yahweh. This is how mighty he is. This is drove her to even more worship. Look at what he's done in my life. Now look at who he is. Then in verses 9 and 2, it even expands more. He worshiped her worship, extended from her own story of worshiping God to who he is, but then gets bigger. In 9 and 10, he, now she worships, moves to how it will be when Yahweh fully and completely invisible rules. This is her hope. When he comes back and establishes his kingdom. She's talking about Jesus here in the hope of what he's going to do when he comes back. Right here in 1 Samuel. Before even David is on the scene. This is really cool. There's a lot of connections between this prayer and, and Mary's prayer. Um, I wish we had time to, to look at that. 
Um, but if not, there's, there's a lot of things. You, if you want to look at it, you can come to me. I can give you some books. Really neat. But this is, she moves from God save me here to, oh my goodness, look at who he is. Look what he's going to do. The gospel in her life got so much bigger. It went from her own world to who he is to, oh my goodness, what he's going to do in this world. And she was utterly in worship. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not my might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. and He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The Lord will come back and make all things new. And it started out in distress and it ends in the fact that she knows that Yahweh is mighty. It's great character. He's going to come back to take away all of our tears, to take away all of our sickness, take away death, take away sin, and restore all things. That's her hope. That's probably what turned her tears to sadness in the very beginning. And her prayer led her there. Going to the Lord led her there. And I, I wish I could say I'm, I'm good at this, not. But this encourages us to, in our time of worry, to go to the Lord because he is a spring of living water and there's life there and there's hope there. And this changes the way we pray in our worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Hannah and the, the trophy of grace that she is. Father, there's a lot of things we don't understand in our own life, why things happen the way they do. And, but Father, we do know that you are our true king. You are true God, and that we can only find contentment and joy in you. And Father, I pray that we would be men who continually go before your presence, and pray to you, but also, Lord, I pray that that would drive us to worship in who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a good week.